0: You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there all you triathlon studs and stud ats. This is Coach Brett with another great episode. Of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. Well, all right, this is going to be a very special episode. This is the race review of Gravel Locos, a 157 mile long gravel race, one of the best races I've ever done. I've spent the last week compiling notes and thoughts and categorized them and ordered them so that we can record a nice podcast episode all about what it took, what it was like, and tips for you if you want to do it down the road. And just to lay out a little bit of the setting here, I got out of the house to record. It's a beautiful day outside, so I hopped in the Zentri Mobile Studios, drove down the road a bit, found some shade, and we're going to record. So you're going to hear... The sounds of birds and nature around us. Just perfect. And also, on my way out the door, my big black German Shepherd, River, wanted to come with me. So he's in the back. So if you hear panting or collars jingle, then just remember we've got my podcast and training buddy here in the car with me. All right, so Gravel Locos is on its third year. And it is in Heico, Texas, which is... I would say about an hour or so northwest of Waco. The terrain is unbelievable. I had such a great experience. I would put it up there in my top five, top three bike races, just events period that I've ever done as far as fun and uh, when you cross the finish line, like how you feel and just the amazing experience that you had. There was a bit of controversy about the finish and the overall winner, and so I'll talk about that at the end, and also have a little bit of my own controversy about it that uh, just for fun, I'll throw in there towards the end of the of the podcast. and Another thing to know is it turns out that pros are using this race as a tune up for unbound. Unbound is the unofficial world championships of gravel, and it's in Kansas, which some people think it's close by. I don't think it's close by, <laughs> but it's close by enough. But time wise, we're two, three weeks out. So a lot of pros show up to try to do this race and, you know, fine tune their skills. And I think it's a great race for it because it's generally a smoothish kind of gravel. So you're not going to run into problems with that. And it's very remote. So there's not many cars or anything. And the, support and production is top notch and because it's relatively new and it's not quite that popular yet although it's getting there i think there's uh, not as much pressure so you can kind of test things out see how see how you're doing all right one of the most major things from my perspective is that i rode over 150 miles with no injuries no real pain no cramps and this was my longest bike ride ever I have ridden 172 miles in one day, uh, actually nonstop, but that was on a tri-bike on paved roads, obviously. And that took nine hours and change. And I was on the Gravel Locos course for 11 and a half hours. So my point being is that the training that we do as triathletes is really nice cross training. I was doing about... Uh, Half Ironman training that was a little bit bike heavy and a little bit swim heavy and a little bit light on the run, very light on the run, and just kind of did some focusing of efforts, which we'll get into, and turned around and and rode the longest ride of my life. I rode 11 and a half hours uh, and finished fine. I was tired, but I was absolutely fine. So you can do the same thing too. And we're going to cover the specific things I did to make sure that I was able to do this and come across the finish line and actually be able to celebrate instead of being put in an ambulance <laughs> which I was concerned about it is a very very long way and gravel is very hard and can be very slow uh depending on the course and the situation that you're in all right at 11 and a half hours 11 hours and 27 minutes I finished mid pack for my age group I think I was Uh, like around 30 out of 47, and that's just men 45 to 49 just in the 157-miler. I think there was something like 2,000 people there. I was definitely not racing. I'm going to call it a race. We're going to talk about this race that I did, but I was not racing it. I was out there just to enjoy it and have a good time. So most of what I was doing was just riding kind of easy and trying to keep my heart rate below 130, I think, which was hard at first and then very easy towards the end. And yeah, again, and the pro field that turned up for the race was absolutely nuts. Ivar Silk, who won last year, I think, or he won Unbound last year, Ian Boswell, Lawrence Tendam, uh, who's a Tour de France, 10-time Tour de France racer. I think Ian Boswell was in the Tour de France too. Payson McElveen, Dylan Johnson, those are two very famous gravel riders. Those are just some of them. I might remember a couple more throughout the show. Uh, Kai pointed out that only three out of the top ten were American. And just some high points of my own race. Uh, I I took two wrong turns, but only briefly. Just for like... One was just for a few moments, and the other one was for maybe uh, a minute. Maybe half a minute. Didn't really affect my race. I got sprayed by a skunk. The... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's a river crossing uh, with... Uh, I forgot what mile it is, but that makes it really cool and uh, turns it more into an adventure bike race. I'll get into details on that. And then downtown Heico, Texas is really, really cool. It's very, very small, but it's kind of like in this valley and it's kind of like an old western town, but... Just a really neat environment. You're like, oh, cool, look at that, look at that. Oh, whoa, look at that. It's really fun. Small, but happening. And it's in a kind of like down in this valley, and there's lots of tree cover and such down there. So it's just made it really nice. Somebody that drove from Dallas, I went and looked at it myself, said if you're coming from far away, fly into Dallas. It's about a two-hour drive from the Dallas airport. So that's where you would fly into to do this race, I think, probably more so than Austin. And then, yeah, the terrain is a mix of mesas and Texas hill country, which is limestone, big, big hills, big ridge lines. But if you're further south, just west of Austin, that terrain is scrubby and a lot of exposed rock and a lot of exposed limestone. And this terrain, being a little bit further north, is the breaking point of where it's green. So it's this lush green. The trees aren't like super tall or anything, but it's just covered in vegetation. Green, beautiful, rolling hills. And it reminded me, somehow, of Vermont. So if I was to describe it to somebody, yeah, it would be like that. It's a Texas gravel race in a western town that's been dropped in the middle of Vermont. (laughs) And if you know those two things, that's pretty awesome. Leading up to the race, doing my research that I love to do before getting into a race to figure out like how how much hill work to do, how much uh, flat work to do, what's the course going to be like. I found out, well, what I did is I watched videos of gravel locos and also went on Reddit and asked a couple questions. And Uh, people were saying that it's what they call champagne gravel. There's a bird situation going on over there. Okay. And the, that's nice. That's nice to know that it's champagne gravel and that also the last, was it last year? It rained a ton. One of the previous years, it rained a ton before and then at the end of the race. And I spent a lot of time looking very closely at the video of that to see how much tires got clogged and jammed into the frames with mud. And it was non-existent. Even with everybody being soaking wet, there was no mud and, uh, or not enough mud to jam tires into frames. And I'm like, okay, this is great because the weather was looking a little bit questionable with some rain. And then also it was living up, the video was showing that it was living up to its name as Champagne Gravel. It's pulverized. Uh, people kept calling it sand, and it's not sand, because East Texas has sand. It was more like pulverized limestone rock, but not sand. Very similar to sand, but not really sand. It's more like just grit. And then a Dylan Johnson video, he talked about the ter- the terrain and what tires you would need, and... It's hard pack. Basically, it lived up to what he said. He said it was hard pack, but it's lumpy with rocks kind of embedded into the ground. So they kind of stick up a little bit. And the cool thing, this is not flint rock like unbound and the rocks are, are worn. So, yeah, they're lumpy and bumpy in places where it's not hard pack uh, sand, <laughs> hard pack dirt and pulverized gravel but it's not sharp so you're not going to get the tire punctures like you would get at some courses and it's definitely not chunky gravel where you're going to be slowed down because you're riding on golf ball size rubble so i was like man this is a great race to do as your first gravel race it's going to be fine no matter what the weather is and they do all different kinds of distances. And no mud and no deep pockets of sand, so what could go wrong, right? It's gonna it's gonna be a great time, and the scenery is amazing. And oh yeah, and then no flint rocks, so like very few flat tires, due to the um, due to the terrain. So this is really nice, and also a really big turnout. Along with the huge pro turnout, there was. I think around 2,000 people total, and they do these different distances. They do 30-something, 60-something, 112 is the actual distance of the 100-something, and 157 miles is the distance of the uh, 150. And, yeah, turns out this is going to be great. I haven't done a gravel race in a couple of years, and the last one I did was extremely hilly and had big pockets of sand and was frustrating with getting stuck in the sand and having to walk So this was going to be really nice. All right. So the events leading up to the race, the training and prep is about three weeks out from the race date. I realized this race was happening. I'd actually kind of forgotten about it. We'd been so caught up in mountain bike racing for Kai and finishing out his season that I hadn't been paying attention to any other racing on the racing calendar and after, the day or so after his last race, I went to chat GPT and I said, what is the best mountain bike racing? And I think was my first question in Texas. And they said the uh, Austin Rattler, which is a qualifier for Leadville, big mountain bike race. We do giant loops. And then I changed my question and said, what is the best gravel race in Texas? And it came back with Gravel Locos. And I was like, oh yeah, Gravel Locos. What's going on with that? And then I looked into it I was like, holy crap, it's coming up in like three weeks. And I got really excited because I, doing more research, I figured out that the race was going to actually work with our schedule. Kai and I had nothing planned that weekend. And with our family, there's always stuff going on. There's stuff the weekend before, stuff the weekend after that we need to do. But this weekend we could actually do it. It's a few weeks out so I can modify my training and sharpen the, the blade a little bit and get focused on what it takes. And as my memory served me correctly, the race used to be free. <laughs> you donate to as much as you want to the HICO Volunteer Fire Department. So I got really excited, started developing plans of how this was all going to get executed, started clearing the plans with the family, Kai's on board, everybody wants us to go do this, and then we went to register, and then found out, there was the donation slot, where you could say how much you wanted to donate to the race, and so I was going to register, uh, one of us first, me or Kai, I don't remember, and then it said, total amount due, uh, I we were going to donate like 30 bucks to the, to the fire department, and it was like two hundred and something dollars. I was like, what? Where did this come from? And this year, I don't know if they did this last year, but this year, they are charging for the race now. And it's not a lot. It it was $185 for the long distance one, which is comparable in pricing to the to Unbound. Unbound is like two hundred dollars for the two hundred miler. So it's basically a dollar a mile. And you know, compared to Iron Man and stuff, that's not that bad. But the, the problem was that with two people going, we're looking at $350, $400 in entry fee. And our money is spoken for with all the other racing that we had been doing and with Kai's graduation coming up. And I was like, dude, we do not have this money all of a sudden to do this. And then uh, we had a kind of a personal tragedy where Emily's a nurse and she parked at an apartment complex to take care of a patient who was dying and she got her car towed because it's a huge apartment complex and the visitor parking is and it's an old apartment complex and if you come in from the backside it has many many entrances it's not obvious that there's visitor parking only and that you have to have like a permit sticker or something like that other nurses have been there to take care of this patient uh, before no one noticed anything she got her car towed And it was $360 something to get her car out of impound. So there went our race entry fee. And I posted on Instagram, Hey, anybody want to help out for us to go do this race? Because we had decided that we were going to do it. It was all going to work out. And then for us all of a sudden to not have the money to register for this thing was just a huge hit. I mean, I just felt my heart sink. I was like, man, we're not going to be able to do this. So we had somebody step up and help us pay the, uh, the entry fee. You know who you are and this show is dedicated to you and thank you so much. And you actually, I, I called him up afterwards and uh, thanked him profusely and said, uh, we had one of the best times in our entire life. Thank you so, so much. And he said, Oh, it's no problem. Uh, for all the content and everything that you've been doing for all these years, it's the least he could do. So that's the cool thing about having a podcast <laughs> is the social social network and the uh, friends and then the community you build and the way we all pay each other uh, back back and forth. Uh, I've had somebody reach out to me and say that uh, if we go to the gravel nationals in Nebraska, that we could have a place to stay there. It's that kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, so amazing. So anyway, thank you so much for getting us there. But let's get back to the show. Let's get back to the race itself. Oh, well, leading up to the race. So now we're able to actually register for the race. We decided to take our RV there because then it was only going to be $40 a night. There's a limited hotel in Heiko. And Heiko is 30 minutes, 30 miles away from any other town with hotels. And if we take the RV, then and it's a trailer bumper pool RV, then we will be at the starting line. The The RV camping grounds is at the starting line. And at only $40 a night, we could stay there two nights. I literally rode our bike from where we parked over to go pick up our packets. I mean, it's just the way to go. It's so cool. and And we're able to save money on hotel and be right there. So that was really cool. So we found out that taking the RV was gonna be a good idea, that that we'd be able to stay on the race site. So now the training specific for this race comes into effect and also studying the course. First thing I do is I look to see the course uh, vertical gain and divide that by the miles or vice versa, whatever. But I end up with uh, feet per mile and then look at my training and start trying to match my training and make sure that I'm getting that volume of training and that vertical gain in the training and that way on race day, it's not a shock to the system. And I don't cramp up trying to climb stuff that's way more than what I've been training for. And I did at least two really big weekends of back-to-back big days, four hours a day, five hours a day sometimes. And it turned out that the vertical gain I was doing matched up pretty closely to the, uh, the requirements for the race race had like 6,000 something feet vertical gain and I was doing 6,000 something feet vertical gain average for the same distance in my training. And so what I did was I didn't do any hill work specific like outside of the training. I didn't do hill repeats on the train or anything like that. I didn't need to because I was already doing the vertical gain. And then the week before the race cut back on running cut my running in half. I still kept swimming. Hey, dropping a little bit of commentary in post edit. Like we always say, we'll fix this in post. The other reason I kept swimming was to keep some consistency in my life because when you start tapering for something, you can go a little bit nuts with worrying that you're losing fitness. And with swimming being upper body almost entirely because uh, I don't kick that much and swimming on purpose to save my legs. and The thing is I knew I could keep swimming and it would settle my mind and make me remember, feel like that I'm still doing something. And also it's a nice meditative time. You're in the water for a long time and you think of a lot of things that you might need for the race. So while I was swimming on the side of the pool, I kept my phone and every once in a while I would have a thought like, Oh my gosh, you don't have any spare tubes. You should take a spare tube with you just in case and then a million other things that you can add to a to-do list and don't forget list so that's one of the many reasons that i kept swimming and i highly advise uh, doing something like that in your taper week or weeks up to a race just going for a walk and uh, listening to a podcast or some music and then uh, letting your mind wander and then you'll think of a lot of things that you don't want to forget and also it relieves anxiety uh going into the race and also swimming really helps with your upper body strength and on the race you know with gravel and the distance you start to fatigue your upper body starts your triceps and forearms and hands start to hurt uh doing distances like that and also i have arrow bars on my bike which in this case definitely were comfort bars i was able to switch up positions and kind of relax. And give my hands a break. I think it's a huge thing if you're going really long. And then I also have a suspension stem. And we're riding vast magnesium bikes. And magnesium frames are uh, really good at shock absorption. So they're very smooth riding. And I also was riding the plumpest tires that my bike will hold. And that gives additional uh, suspension and comfort. And rode them at kind of medium tire pressure medium to maybe a little bit low in the front and also yeah a suspension stem by a redshift to take the edge off of things and vast if if you're looking for a magnesium bike like that vast is v-a-a-s-t the only thing i don't like about them is the they're they're actually they're absolutely amazing except the current models have tire clearance only up to 42 i think and at my height and weight i'm I like, uh, 48, but I'm going to get into that in a minute. My, the workaround I did around that. So the, the week leading up to the race, as you cut back on your, your volume and you get anxious and you're not working out as much, the thing to do is that's when you start packing up all your stuff, checking all your lists. And also the day before the race, uh, shave my legs with clippers that saves you over this kind of distance. It might save somewhere like five to eight minutes of time not kidding. <laughs> it's substantial. It depends on how furry your legs are. Kai did the same thing. And my recommendation with clippers is, uh, or with shaving your legs is just use clippers. If you're a guy and, uh, you don't want to mess with razors and stuff like that. And you don't mess with shaving your legs all the time. Uh, very close, uh, hair trimmer clippers do the job amazingly well. And you shave your legs in like, I don't know, 10 minutes. It seems like, And it just works. It's absolutely amazing. It's a big tip right there. And then on the way out of town on Friday, I think it was Friday morning, we stopped at the local bike shop and got more Dyna plugs for the, um, uh, tire plugs. I've tried all different kinds and I tried Dyna plug for the first time, uh, maybe a month ago and wow, that worked really, really well. I was very impressed. And Kai was running low on them. So we bought another strip of dyna plugs for him to carry. And then also brake pads to carry just in case, because if there was rain in the forecast and that grit, usually people talk about sand, but grit will do the same thing of any kind. You get a lot of water and grit in your brake pads. And you can eat through a pair of brake pads, and over this distance, there have been people who've had to quit races because they've eaten through their brake pads, uh, because of of the wear effect of water and and uh, sand or uh, this fine powder grit. So I just grabbed a couple. They were already on. Uh, we'd ordered them a while back, and they were just sitting there. But my point being is that we picked them up, and um, I threw them in my in my uh, camelback so that I had some just in case, and. Uh, These gravel races, you need to be pretty self-sufficient because the aid stations are 30, 40 miles apart. I think 50 miles apart on this one. And then we also made sure we both had multi-tools, stuff like that. And then also they recommended on the race site that you have cash uh, for... There's two... If you're doing the 150, there's uh, two gas stations along the way. So you can get anything that you want. That's the spirit of gravel right there. You can actually stop at gas stations and get food (laughs) if you want. Uh, along with the other aid stations. And I saw people doing that. It's kind of funny. You okay, River? You having fun? Okay. Yeah, so the drive there on Friday. Uh, the scenery was absolutely insane. After we got kind of past the Temple, uh, Waco area. It just got hillier and hillier and hillier. And pretty green. And I just couldn't believe it. I think also we've had a lot of rain this spring. So that, that greens things up a little bit. And... Yeah, it's just like these ridgeline hills, just miles long across the horizon. Uh, like I said, it was like Vermont. And then I remembered on the way there that we didn't buy or bring with us any sunscreen. That was the one thing we forgot was sunscreen. And I was like, dang it. So went into a gas station along the way, and they wanted $20 for sunscreen. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. And then when we got into HiCo, we stopped. And went into, well, that's where we went into the gas station when they wanted that price. Well, there was a drugstore around the corner, which old timey, quiet, small town drugstore went in there and they had the same sunscreen for half that price. So for 10 bucks and I like the um, spray on sunscreen for this kind of stuff because you get easy coverage. It's clear. uh, You don't you're not smearing stuff all over you while you're while you're trying to ride and stuff. So uh, that's what we got. And then Kai and I started arguing over who was going to actually carry it. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'll carry it. Don't worry about it. And then we got to the race site, which is a few miles north of town, pulled in with the RV, pulled into our spot. Everything, I, you know, because of COVID pandemic stuff, everything's done online. Uh, never, never saw the person that we registered our spot with. Never saw anybody enforcing anything with the RV stuff. It was all done, I think, kind of behind the scenes. But we knew we were spot 11B. We found 11B, pulled in. Turns out, if you're taking your RV there, you need to know this. The RV parking is in a field, a grassy field. And they have all the, the hookups, electric and water and sewage hookups. And just sticking up out of the ground like in a pasture. And if it's been raining a lot, Uh, and you're pulling an RV, you might be affected by that field turning into mud. It didn't for us. I think it ended up being fine, but my truck's got four-wheel drive, so I wasn't too worried about it. It's just a thing to know, and as we were pulling into the parking spot, Kai pointed excited off to the left, and he said, dude, that's Payson McElvin's rig, and he has this really cool a drivable RV. RV. I think that's called a class A. I forgot what it's called. But anyway, that's like a motor coach, motor home style. It's not where you tow it behind a truck or anything like that. And then a yellow Bronco. I think it was a two-door Bronco uh, that looks like, I guess, was being towed behind that. You know how people do that? They drive the RV and then they tow a vehicle behind that. And it was pulled into a spot. And it had all the logos. He rides for Allied. And it was uh, just really, really cool looking. <laughs> and that's when the excitement began, began about the pros and the expo and stuff. And the thing to know, though, is that at that location, that RV park, so a couple miles outside of town of a very small town, the cell signal is terrible. One bar out of five, on rare occasion, maybe two. Kai and I were on our phones Uh, trying to look at updates, uh, look at stuff on Instagram, listen to music, anything. And there was either nothing coming through or the lag was uh, so bad that I wouldn't call it unusable, but just be prepared for that. And then also the first part of the race, the times I did turn on my phone to see, I had no, no signal, nothing. Anyway, then... We we parked the RV, started getting it set up, and then went over to Packet Pickup, uh, which uh the, the event has like a pre-ride and pro sit and eat with the pros and all kinds of stuff like that. We missed that. We didn't get there till after well after that. When did Packet Pickup and Ian Boswell, I think? No, Ted King. Ted King is the one that has the maple syrup. So this race is sponsored by Untapped Maple Syrup and Red Bull and something moose. Uh, I think it's moose, but, uh, a bike bag, you know, company. So, uh, a small, but high quality amount of, uh, race sponsors. So we were checking out their stuff and did some sampling of the maple syrup and it was just really cool. We got our packet and it's a packet. So you got a bottle and a tall bottle, which is really nice and a nice t-shirt race number, and then a discount if you went to a brewery, and then a a string backpack. So it was all nice. And then we went back to the RV, and I finished setting it up, and Kai went out for a pre-ride of the course a little bit to see what it was like. He had on his training plan like a 45-minute ride, I think, of just spinning out and getting his legs ready, which also served really nice to see what the, the terrain was like. So I started cooking some pasta, And then when he got back, he said, man, the course is really, really great. It's, it's rolling hills and the gravel is champagne gravel. It's amazing. And he's very excited. And he started naming off other pros and other things that he had seen and was very excited. And I said, that's so cool. I did not do a pre-ride because it's going to take everything I've got on earth to finish this race. (laughs) And I'm going to start off slow. So I just was like, and and I had done all my all this research already on what the course was going to be like and uh so I was just saving my legs for race day for tomorrow and also the other thing by the way a coaching tip is I counted the significant number of hills hills that on the elevation profile looked like it was going to make the course difficult and I counted anywhere from 12 to 15 big uh, I don't know what to call them climbs, but you know of like five minutes plus maybe of putting down real effort to get up over the top. And so as a training strategy and as a racing strategy, you need you train so that you can do that. You, you think I need to be able to do fifteen hills in a row, right of this specific kind of difficulty. And the other thing you train for, All right, it's starting to get a little bit hot where I'm sitting, so I'm going to move locations and pick back up with the podcast here in just a few minutes. Be right back. All right, I'm back. I went back to the Zentri Home Studios. (laughs) It was getting too hot in the car. Emily and Kai are wandering around, so let's see if they leave me alone long enough for me to record this thing. So the other thing about the race course to study is the direction of the wind In relation to the course directions and then also the temperature and of course you know rain and stuff like that so the predicted wind was going to be out of the north and the race course generally goes south it makes a kind of a cross it's an unusual uh, race course i really like it because it allows for cutting the course at different points if you want to make your race shorter i think it's a really smart race layout course layout and What that means is it's going to be easier on the way out and harder on the way back, which can be very difficult for some people. There's a specific way of dealing with that. And then the reason the wind was out of the north is because a front was coming through at night. Not a big one, not a severe one, but enough to drop the temperature just a little bit or keep the temperatures cooler. So the race was actually going to be uh, not incredibly hot, which is nice for Texas for it not to be hot. And a little bit unusual. Predominantly, the wind would be out of the south and it would be a warm to hot race. But we got lucky, a little front coming through. Changed that around. So the strategy is to, well, knowing the temperature, the wind direction, and the the difficulty of all that will also tell you about how much water you need to be looking for and mix that in with your fuel and also uh, how to pace the race. And that typically would mean in this situation to, because, to go out really, really easy to the halfway point because you've already got a tailwind pushing you along. So you, your average speed is already nice and high without trying. And then what you're doing is you're saving your energy for later in the day when it's going to get harder because you're going back also uphill <laughs> towards the very end uh, into a headwind. And at least, at least it wasn't going to be hot. So nighttime came, we started going to sleep and then the storm front came through and it was severe with lightning and wind. And it was kind of rocking the RV just a little bit. And it was kind of funny because the people right next to us did the truck tent camping thing. And we've always thought about, you know, sizing down the RV and getting a, you know, like doing a tent instead and oh my god I'm so so glad for this race that we haven't done that yet because we're in there nice and safe and uh dry and the next morning the people uh told us that it was uh, quite the adventure out there and, and pretty scary out there in the weather during that storm front that came through uh and then at, at the race start and for the first few miles uh I was concerned about the um the course being muddy and uh, us not having a good time because of the, the rain and um, turned out it did what I more of what I hoped it would do and it dampened the course so you didn't get that big gravel uh, uh, dust cloud that you get at a lot of gravel races at the start where you can't see and you're just getting grit in your teeth and and rocks thrown all over the place it was all it's in mountain biking is called hero dirt where it's rained or, or the soil like if it rains and then the the perfect time to race is like 2 days after a rainstorm because the earth is still uh wet or damp but it's not wet and so it makes for just like the most perfect mountain biking surface well this was kind of like that anyway all the different distances started at the same time. Kai and I picked the 157 really just to be crazy and to do something that neither one of us had ever done before. And the plan was for Kai to ride with me because I have done lots of stuff that's uh, 11 plus hours, <laughs> twice that, and I know how to pace myself for these kinds of things. And Kai hasn't. Kai's done... Up until then, like an eight hour, uh, maybe. I think maybe eight hours was the longest thing he'd done. It was a gravel race. It was 100 miles. And so doing 157 was going to be uh, un, unknown and, and new to him. So the plan was for, yeah, for him to stick with me. And let's see, I just had uh, granola cereal, nice big bowl of granola cereal, let that settle, and maybe snacked on a couple things. And also the pasta the night before and Kai ate bagels it was just nice uh, getting that together It showed up at the start line which was supposed to start at 730 but there was un-, un unnecessary delays in my opinion I'm like what is going on but you never know what's going on so who knows uh, maybe road clearing up the road or something like that, or waiting for some, of uh, a, a late pro or something like that, because this really does, this race really does. These gravel races really can revolve around, you know, who's there, especially if it's the first years and they're trying to get them established. But I think that we actually started around closer to eight, even though it was supposed to be seven thirty closer to eight. And the start was a gateway that you go through, you know, with the timing chip mats and your timing, your race number was, um, uh, timing chipped, you know, with that thing inside the race number, there were no rules on arrow bars announced and there were no rules announced on, uh, how to put your race number on. So I made sure that I folded mine nicely and tightly around the head tube. Well, not too tight. And then, um, kai did kind of the same thing some people put their sideways uh putting your race number broadside flat into the wind is one of the best ways to make yourself be out there on the race course far longer than you need to it adds a ton of drag so you want to avoid that if you can however you however you do that you just don't want to bend the um the timing chip piece that's inside your race number and you also want to follow the rules that way if everybody has to put their race number on flat, then every, then it affects everybody the same. So just might as well go with it. Okay. Then as we were getting in line for the race to start, Kai started pointing out, dude, there's there's uh, Dylan Johnson and there's this person and there's that person. And, it, and uh, so he was able to pick them out. It was really cool to see them try to get in at the front. I'd say Kai and I were about halfway back in the 2000 people maybe. And... They said, oh, so Kai and I are are sitting there waiting and (laughs) Kai said, uh, dad, your tire's leaking. And I was like, what? And he could hear it. It was going like that. I was like, God dang it. And I had got a hole in it from, I think from training rides, I managed to get a hole in it and it was leaking air and um, we spun the tire until the hole was at the bottom of the rotation. And then the sealant using orange seal, uh, was plugging it up and it stopped it. And I only la- lost like a tiny bit of air. So I was starting off at like 45 PSI for, yeah. And I think I probably, went, probably took it down to 35 with that, which wasn't, you know, terrible. And it adds a little bit more cushion anyway. And then at the aid stations, I made sure to try to remember to leave I knew where the spot was. It was opposite of the tire valve. And so to have the tire valve at the top and then that way, if the hole started leaking again, there'd be sealant down at the bottom, uh, where the, where the hole was, uh, which was opposite of the tire valve. But I was like, man, what a great way to start off a race, (laughs) a leaking front tire, but it ended up not affecting anything. So it was fun. So they they said, ready, set, go. Everybody's all leaving at the same time. The pros are at the front. You see them leave the gates and take a hard left out onto the highway. (laughs) I mean, like bats out of hell. Just taking off like that. And so I had talked at length about how he was going to ride with me. He was worried too. He wanted to make sure that he would finish. The goal was for him to finish, not to compete and not to race this thing, but for him just to finish and uh, then he gets the longest one ever under his belt, and he can race ones after that. Um, so they sent people off, they said, you know, race, that go, and then Kai, without a word, looks at me, looks at the people taken off off the front, looks at me, starts waddling, you know, because he's straddling his bike, starts waddling on his frame uh, up along the side of the, of the big starting line as we're wading across, and then waddles some more, turns back and looks at me again, and and I said something like, what are you doing? <laughs> like that. And, then, and then he clips in and and starts riding his bike up to the front and squeezes his way in, like a lot of people were doing, up at the front. And uh, there was another guy about my age, probably a dad, that was standing there. And he said, were you all supposed to ride together? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, that lasted about 30 seconds. <laughs> I said, yeah, we didn't even make it to the start line. <laughs> and he's already gone. And that's the way the race started. And I did not see Kai again until the finish line. It was pretty funny. And it all ended up fine. Kai did really great, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, the good thing was he did not start at the very front with the pros. By the t- he said that by the time that he got through the starting gate, the starting shoot, that the pros were long gone. And that really served Kai well because he would have tried to stay with him and then that would have burned him up, blown him up. And he at least half listened to me and he rode under his target heart rate, which I think he he averaged around 150, which he's really young. He's 18, so that's like a good heart rate for him, a nice chill heart rate. And, and he, the pack he was riding with of, of the group of people was about riding all about that same pace, and with the pros gone over the horizon, they weren't, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, alluring enough. They weren't like this magnet for him to try to go and keep up with. So that was nice. So in my own case, I knew I was going to be out there 11, possibly 12 hours. Because I knew that I could do I could do it in 15 hours. I mean, uh, in 10 hours, if it was like perfect conditions and it was broken up into two pieces. That's what I was averaging. Well, this was all gonna be in one piece. So I added about another hour, and then also for stopping and for uh, peeing and for, um, I don't know, aid stations, and, and uh, a little bit hillier than maybe I was used to. So I was like, yeah, add about, about another hour, hour and a half. It turned out I was about right. And I also knew from experience that if whenever I do five hour long rides, my phone's almost dead at the end. And I was concerned about that, and also I'm using my Garmin watch, which doesn't have a huge battery, as the as my bike computer, a uh, Forerunner, I think it's a 945. And I was worried about that lasting the entire way too. So the first thing I did is I turned off my phone as we started. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, hold on. No. All right, we've had another change in the podcast situation. Emily's parents showed up (laughs) at the house. Kai's graduation is coming up, and they're here to help plan out stuff. And I'm in the—this is what makes podcasting so hard, (laughs) is not having a uh, special, like, podcasting studio I can go to and actually record. But this is the life. And I've got uh, River in here with me, so he'll leave them alone. So we're going to try to do— Kai, for River, stop. Good boy. Good boy. So we're probably going to hear some family noise in the background, even though I'm in a, I'm in a room by myself with River. But we do what we can. Okay, back to the race. Starting out, uh, yeah, I turned off my phone, and the plan was to not turn it on until halfway through the race because I figured it would last that long. And then that's also a real bummer because I really enjoy listening to podcasts and music. It keeps me from trying too hard during the race, you know, cause I'm just kind of chilling and whatever. And for really long stuff, that's a, that's actually a nice advantage to have. So you don't go too hard too soon. And I wasn't gonna be able to do that because I needed the phone for, uh, in case there's an emergency. And also if you are gonna have music or um, something to listen to, might as well have it during the hardest part of the race. And the second half of the race is gonna be the hardest part of the race. So, Oh, and also for, Oh, River sees a dog across the street. And also the headphones that I use for this are called shocks. They used to be called aftershocks, something like that. And they're uh, bone conduction headphones. Lots of people are using them. They don't plug up your ears. So you can actually still hear really well everything going on. I wore them the entire race and only turned them on the uh, second half. Uh, So some things I noticed uh, starting off in the race, uh, my legs were a little bit sore. Okay, I'm back. Oh, my God. (laughs) So yeah, starting off the race, I noticed that my legs were a little bit sore. So I'm really glad that I didn't do any intervals and such. Kai was doing intervals the week of the race. And I was like, you sure you want to be doing those? And he's like, "Dude, I recover faster than you. And I'm like, yeah, but this is the longest race you've ever done. And then he said, well, I'm not really racing it. It's just really training, Not, um, he's not really gonna race it. So for uh, more important races down the road, it's actually important for him to go into this race you know, uh, a little bit uh, trained and uh, with a little bit of work going into it. And he's actually right about that. That's, that's true. So I said, okay, well, fine. But I was glad I hadn't done any intervals and uh, because, I don't know, maybe half an hour into the race, so my legs loosened up, felt fine. Uh, the race didn't have the uh, big dust cloud And it didn't have the big um, rocks that are thrown up and hitting everybody's bike frames, uh, bouncing around like I've seen in a lot of races. And also, um, you can actually get hit in the teeth or in the face, in the glass, in your eyes, if you're not wearing glasses, uh, with uh, the start of gravel races where everybody's riding in a pack. And it had none of that. The only downside was it had uh, the occasional um, soft wet spot in the road that would be kind of muddy, sort of, or slick, um, kind of greasy, I guess I would say. And, and, uh, on, on rare occasion and rare spots. Kai told me later that the group he was riding with, uh, they were using hand signals, which I've been doing, you know, my entire cycling life, you point to the right or to the left. And you, if you, people can hear you say, usually if you're road biking you say (laughs) gravel but you say like broken glass or stick or something like that Uh, i guess at race conditions you just point but he showed me one if you do the um uh, like the hawaiian boom chaka sign where just your pinky and just your thumb are sticking up if you point down at the ground like that that means that there's stuff on both sides and you're going to ride through the middle of it so that means a wet spot a greasy spot mud mud spot yeah on on your right and on the left and they're going to ride the 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 narrow dry spot in between usually in the middle of the road. And I thought that was really cool. I learned a new um hand signal. I I didn't get to put it in use yet well, when I ride with Kai. We'll uh, practice it. That was really neat. So like I said, the race goes makes it makes like a big cross, like an iron cross kind of looking thing. Uh and the first 15 miles of it is net downhill. I actually went to the race profile and, you know, checked it all out. You should spend a lot of time looking at the race course and the hill profile for these races. If you're going to do something like that for any long race that you do, and then you know what you're getting into and you can pace yourself better. And so I also knew that the last 15 miles was going to be net uphill into a headwind. So The point is, is the whole first half of the race, you know, 80 miles, 70 miles or so is downhill with um, is tailwind in general or crosswind, crosswind tailwind. And so I'm just riding with the with the the pack and then noticing um, what what I tend to do is when uh, a race with something that I'm not, you know, highly skilled at. Like, uh, you know, like in triathlon, I'll try to be off the front as as soon as I can and, you know, go high speed. And short mountain bike races, same thing. And something like long-distance mountain bike races, long-distance gravel, I'm basically starting off the back on purpose and then counting how many people I pass. So instead of, oh, I was in fifth from the fir- from first place, <laughs> I start in last place and pass people, and you learn that in Ironman racing, triathlon, that uh, you can you can't draft, but you can slingshot off of people. So you start. It's okay to not come out of the water or whatever race you're doing towards the front, and actually come more towards the back because you you the slingshot means that you're drafting off the person in front of you as you gain on them. And then with that extra speed, then you go around them and then you target the next person and the next person and the next person. And it's a way that um, the pros aren't allowed to do that in Ironman, non-drafting, and but age groupers are. And it's a technique that you learn to, uh, they've proven that age groupers uh, can go actually way faster by using this, this effect, the slingshot method. And so it's fine. So I was just using the slingshot method. But at first, it's just a big, big group of people riding along, uh, trying not to get caught up with, uh, uh people. Uh, the, the, there's a, there's a problem, which if I was to change the race and I'll get into that with my post race thoughts. But if I was to change the race, uh, I wouldn't have everybody of all distances start at the same time because you get people, people that typically doing like 30 miles and that's more of a joy ride i wasn't even timed um there's no results for that and then 60 mile, 60 miles is a decent gravel ride gravel ride gravel race for sure but they tend to not have the same level of biking skills um uh, that you would expect them to have uh to be mixed in with people that are doing 150 you know 110, 110 112 and so i noticed that there was people doing unpredictable things <laughs> mixed in with us, and um, and people, like, pedaling squares instead of circles and people, yeah, like, riding suddenly, like, like changing where they were on the road with no with no um, concern for anybody around them. It's a good way to – that's how uh, Payson – Peyton Payson uh, crashed towards the end. So if, if I was to make a recommendation, I would say, you know, start off the 150-milers, uh, first and then you know wait like 20 minutes and then do the hundreds and then wait like 20 minutes the six i don't know whatever the time difference you know whatever the time difference would be and that way you can break it up a little bit and there's another reason for that uh, that i would do that which i'll get to at the end of uh, the race description here in a minute um so I'm just riding with this big this big group. It's a lot of fun. You're talking to people um, because it was mostly downhill and with the tailwind. I had absolutely no concern whatsoever about um, pushing the pace or trying to, uh, you know, lay down any kind of effort whatsoever early. Just a lot of coasting and then a lot of pedaling, casually talking to people. And then um, over an hour or two maybe, it's, I, I can't remember... Exactly. I'll remember next time. Uh, Then it started to kind of thin out just a little bit. And also the 30 miler, the 30 mile race, I think takes a turn off about, you know, like 15. Yeah, about 15 miles in, they take a turn off. So you lose a bunch of people there and it starts stringing out a little bit. And then I was doing the thing where I'd be riding with the group of like four or five people, and then I would notice that they're going a little bit slower than what I would want to do. So then you'd want to jump the gap to the next group up ahead of you or hop in with a group that's passing by. On occasion, you get somebody like blowing by because they had a a mechanical flat tire or something like that early on, and they're trying to um, regain where they were. So you can hop on the back of them and uh, use them to draft off of them to get up to the next group. And yeah, just that kind of thing. So it kind of turned into that for hours (laughs) for the the next, uh, I don't know, eight hours or six hours, I don't know, something. But uh, that was uh, kind of fun because it's very distracting. And I had a thought also that gravel racing, gravel bike rides like this is uh, road, it's road bike racing for people with ADHD (laughs) because you're having, you're on a gravel road and you can ride on either side of the road there is no center line and the road is always, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. It seems like, so you're always like, well, I'm, this side's pretty good. Oh wait, now that side's smoother. Right. And you're always looking for the smoothest part of the road possible. So you're always yeah, changing sides and uh, taking corners differently and looking for the best, the best surface. So time and the scenery is, you know, instead of like on a paved road where you got a paved road, then you got a shoulder, and then you got a big wide, uh, ditch and then, and then maybe a fence and then maybe some trees way beyond that. Dude, the gravel a lot of times is in the trees, like the, the forest or whatever you're riding in, comes up to the edge of the road and the, um, time flies by because of the, of the, the scenery, the 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 constant—it's a lot like mountain biking, where you constantly have to pick a line, and the constant choices, and, and it's it's very distracting, which is actually great. The time really flew by. I could not believe how actually easy it was to ride the longest ride that I've ever done, which is really surprising. Anyway, Kai and I had uh, multiple plan A, plan B, plan C. You know what happened? One of them was at mile eighty. You can there was a, there was a turn to change your ride into the 110, 112 mile ride instead of doing the 150. And if Kai was having trouble to wait for me, if he'd blown up to wait for me at that mile 80 turn. And I was riding with this uh, older guy, looked like he was 60 something. And he's very grandfatherly. And I I was talking with him and I said, well, I was telling the story about Kai taking off without me. And he was like, well, I'm sure he's fine. Exactly like a grandparent would talk. Well, I'm sure he's fine. He's got a phone with him. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, then, yeah, if he has any trouble, he'll be fine. You know, very lackadaisical. <laughs> very much everything will be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, like how grandparents are really good babysitters for uh, for kids instead of parents because they've been through it all before. And then I said, well, there was, the, there was the 80 miles where he was supposed to wait for me in case there was a problem. And he's like, yeah, see, so he's probably doing great, you know. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, but 80 is only, we're only halfway through this thing. (laughs) And there's still uh, half of the race to go. But anyway, I rode with some people. And then every, on rare occasion, I would see somebody that was towards the second half of the race. I'd see somebody that was having trouble, you know, and needed to sit down uh, and rest in the shade. It was starting to get kind of hot. And and it was full sun. And um, (sighs) somebody that I'd been riding with earlier, um, I passed him again and he was after I took longer in an aid station and he got ahead of me. And, uh, then I saw him kind of sickly in the, uh, in the shade under a tree. And so, so now we're starting to see the attrition, the, the battle, the battle is now starting to take its victims. Um, and I'm so glad that I've just been taking it easy. I'm not having any trouble whatsoever. And then, uh, what I've learned from Ironman racing, also riding on my own, um, uh, in the middle of the day down here, uh, pretty much anywhere where you get a lot of sun is starting around 1030 is a good time to put on sunscreen. And I think the first time I put on sunscreen while I was stopped at an aid station, there's four aid, there's an aid station. The very first aid station was at mile 15, 16 kind of agreed to just skip that one. That one's completely unnecessary. That one was at the top of a hill, a really steep hill and was completely ridiculous because that's where you get all the people that of all different kinds of skill levels and they're standing in the middle of the road <laughs> and had to weave my way through them but I thought oh this is this is what it is, you know this is what you get and i would it didn't bother me, I just thought it was kind of funny and and it's kind of a party, you know and and uh, so I made my way through that, and then I think it was at the second aid station, about mile fifty where I was refilling water and fuel, which I'll get to that in a second. Really cool uh, fueling su- uh, solution. And I put uh, sunscreen on there, I think, the first time. The second time I put on sunscreen, because sunscreen lasts for a few hours maybe, and then you should put some on again. So it's let's say it's like um, two, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I put that sunscreen on while I was riding. So I was on a paved section of road, and I rode kind of no hands, A mix. I can ride no hands, no problem. I've ridden no hands on rollers, right? So I've got good bike skills, but you don't want to test your, uh, press your luck in a race. (laughs) And, uh, so I'm riding and I'm kind of, kind of no hands, uh, doing the spray on sunscreen. That's another upside of the spray on sunscreen while I was moving. And I thought that was kind of cool that I had the ability to do that Another feather in my cap of made me feel kind of awesome that I was able to do that, and also smart to put on sunscreen. Uh, long races in the sun—if you don't put on sunscreen—the actual it, you you get inflammation. Sun, you start sunburning, and it starts taking away your energy, and it makes your race actually harder uh, if you then if you put on sunscreen. And then also your recovery the days afterwards is worse because you're all inflamed from the sunburn. Sunburn is inflammation. Uh, radiation burn from the sun and you don't need that. So put on your sunscreen. And then I was on a paved section. Oh, and the race is about 60% gravel. I think they said, um, it felt like maybe a little bit more than that, but whatever. And I'm on a paved section with a small group of people, like let's say three guys and downhill with a lot of speed and a, in a gentle turn. And to my right is a field and with tall, with wild, all the wildflowers are everywhere. It's beautiful. And so I'm going a pretty good clip. Um, Gravel bikes aren't as fast as road bikes. I I feel like I was doing about 30, 35, maybe miles per hour downhill. And the, uh, there's a black and white animal, the size of a cat starts running out into the road. From the field. I see it coming across the edge of the field and into, it crosses the ditch and starts coming onto the pavement. And it, it was black and white. And then I noticed the, the white is a stripe down its back. And I'm like, oh God, it's a skunk. And I love skunks. I think they're really cool. Anytime I see one, I think they're pretty interesting. But you know, you know, you got to stay away. If you get sprayed, you are, you're skunked for days of, if that, if you're lucky uh, with that smell. And so I was in the lead of this group and somebody said, "Whoa!" and I yelled at it. I go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa." And uh me being a a uh, kind-hearted nice person, I'm like, "My my first concern is I don't want to hit it and kill it by accident, you know, cuz if I hit it, I was talking to somebody later and they're like, "How could you kill it if you hit it?" And I'm like, me and another guy that were cyclists were like, are you kidding me, dude? You hit a small animal, even up to the size of a medium to large dog while on your bike at high speed, you can definitely kill that animal by accident, You know, run over it, break its neck. And then there's a, a big concern that it people uh, flip over on their bikes all the time with a squirrel runs through and gets caught in their spokes, definitely kills the squirrel and then gets caught in there and can flip you over, can kill you if it doesn't severely injure you. So it's a really dangerous situation, and it froze in the middle of the road, (laughs) and then, uh, as it started to to freeze in the middle of the road, it was doing that hesitation, that left-right thing, like I was trying to figure out what to do, because I think it was shocked to see uh, bikers coming down this road as much as we were surprised to see a skunk in the middle of the day in this road, and I um, braced for impact. I pushed the bike way out in front of me and hung my, my butt over the back end of the bike and straightened out my arms. And, and I was like, if, if I hit it, basically the goal is if I can't get around it and I accidentally hit it, I don't want to go flying over the bars. I want to actually go through it or over it, but not flip. And luckily for all of us, I missed it. And the, uh, it did that thing, though, that you see. I posted it on Instagram, Travel on Instagram, where it stood on its front legs and stuck its tail and its butt up in the air, which is the spray pose. And I was like, holy crap. And it got around it, right, really fast. And I figured I didn't get sprayed. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't get sprayed. Thank God. So I'm riding along, and it was such a distraction and so crazy that I turned back to look behind me after a, a minute. Uh, my watch beeped that I was off course. And I was like, what? And I turned back and look, and the the, the group of two or three guys that was behind me had, uh, there was a Y in the road, and I was still on pavement, and they had turned onto this gravel road. And I, uh, with all the chaos, I didn't look at my uh, map. And I um, was off course, but just barely. So I did a U-turn, came back around, and then... Uh, caught up with them eventually. It took, you know, 10 minutes or so, five, 10 minutes to catch up with them. And then I noticed that I smelled skunk and I was like, oh, it's probably just in the air, right? With the wind. It wasn't on me. And I noticed it on occasion throughout the rest of the ride on rare occasion. If I drank out of this one water bottle, and so then I was like smelling my glove, is it on my glove? I couldn't really tell. Is it on the water bar? couldn't really tell. It's just really faint, and you know, there's all kinds of smells, and you're covered in sweat, sunscreen, all kinds of shit, so it's kind of like, you know, who knows? Didn't think much about it, and uh, we'll get to more of, I actually did get sprayed by the skunk a little bit. We'll get to that at the end of the race, and the uh, other weird thing about this race is that well, there's two weird things. There's the uh, river crossing, which is awesome. And that's at the very end. And then the, um, the thing that's not awesome is there are three steep, super, super steep hills in a row on gravel that are so steep and so close together that you can't find them on the hill profile. They're at about mile 40. When I dropped down into my easiest gear to start climbing this, uh, I dropped my chain And then started having to climb, but I've got a, I've got a climbing tip for y'all. If something's super, super steep and you're on your bike and making it up that super steep thing hill is going to completely peak you out. Like, you know, heart rates going through the roof. It's really hard on your legs. You're actually better off getting off your bike anyway and walking it, especially if there's a lot more race to go. And so I did that. <laughs> I also drop. my chain dropped every single time at the beginning when I would put it in my easiest gear. And so then I would just walk from there on out. And you'll notice walking and I've learned this from doing ultra marathon stuff, too, is, you know, running versus walking. There's there's a point where running is of no use. You might as well just walk. And then you're saving your your running muscles or your biking muscles for later. And you're getting off the bike, which is actually good for you. And you're using your walking muscles and your upper body to push your bike, which is, you know, using your, your body differently. And actually, you're not going any faster or, I mean, you're not going hardly any slower than you were if you were on the bike anyway. And in the end, uh, you end up being fresher at the end of the race. So it all evens out anyway. So um, if you're having trouble climbing these things, just walk them. There's a bunch of people walking and I've got no shame, you know, and so like I'm walking it and something really funny happened on the first one. My chain dropped, which is a surprise to me. And then the first time (laughs) after that, I was like, here we go. But, um, the gravel roads, nice and wide right there. And this, this rude lady goes, don't stop in the middle of the road. And I turned and looked at her and I go, well, this is where my bike broke And I know like very, I'm very much a person that would say, Hey, get out of the road. If you're working on your bike or if you're mountain biking, get off the trail, you know, cause you're blocking everybody. But this is a gravel road with, there is no like center of the, it's the whole road is freaking usable. And there, were, there weren't that many people at that one point. So like, just go around. I just found it like really rude and also kind of like, uh, what's the word? whatever the word is for being indignant and like superior acting and, and all that stuff. And, well, and also just rude, but a superior, you know, and, and I kind of laughed to myself because I could just tell by kind of looking at her. And then also the fact that she had to get off her bike about 10 feet after that anyway, because she couldn't climb the thing. Then, um, <laughs> She was in no position to be yelling at other people, you know, to get out of the road. And she was just caught up in the moment and uh, whatever. So uh, it was funny as I kind of put my sights on her for, for the next um, good portion of the race, which was made, made the race more enter- entertaining. And then uh, walking up the hill, I think that one uh, that one hill, she beat me to the top. And then hopped on her bike and then kept, you know, chugging along hard. And then the the next hill, because there's three of these, the very next one, um, I passed her while um, walking up the hill. And then the third one, same thing again. She made a big deal out of passing me, but then ended up having to walk anyway. And then um, I think there was an aid station pretty soon after that. Yeah, because that's at mile forty something, and there was an aid station at mile fifty. And then what's funny is after after that aid station, that last aid station, I had set my target on her and uh, was just kind of gradually like reeled her in. And then um, I never said anything to her because uh, I didn't want to get into it with somebody about how rude that was her yelling at somebody. So I made sure after um, that aid station and I saw her on the horizon, I started catching up to her. And, uh, when I went by her, I went fast enough so that she couldn't latch on and, uh, get a draft off of me. Cause I was, I was annoyed that I was being scolded <laughs> by somebody that, um, uh, telling me, you know, to be out of the road for biking. I don't know if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna chastise people, for behavior. Make sure that you're better than they are (laughs) and you're in a position to actually uh, tell people what to do before you start telling people what to do. Anyway. Okay. So for fueling and water, what I did was I've been talking about it uh, on Instagram and some other stuff. I've been doing the thing that's taken everybody by storm and it actually really does work mostly table sugar for fuel with a little bit of Gatorade powder for flavor. And then sodium citrate, which you can order online for the sodium for your electrolyte. And it works. It's absolutely amazing. And it's super cheap. And I've been using it in training rides up to five hours, no problems whatsoever. It's crazy how well it works. And it all works because table sugar is the right ratio of fructose to sucrose for your body to absorb the energy, the maximum amount of energy possible and it turns out that that's actually more important. The ratio of the different sugar types is actually more important than the osmolality. Osmolality which is like the how how many molecule, the density and the the sodium the the electrolytes and the sodium and stuff like that is important, but it's secondary to the ratio of fr- to fructose to sucrose, for as far as absorption goes, to get it into your stomach. And it turns out that table sugar is exactly the right ratio. So, if you make your fuel out of almost entirely table sugar and you just weigh it with a scale, or you know, you use the scoops and you figure out one scoop how much is, you know, one, then you can just you don't need to weigh it anymore because you can just use your scoops. Um, I have a 25 gram scoop, so that's 100 calories, so I can either weigh it or I can just use scoops. And so I made three different fuel bottles. Uh, each of them were three and a half hours. And so, because I calculated again about how long the race was going to take me. So three and a half hours. You're talking three, nine. Yeah. Uh, I ended up at like 11. What is that? What's well, 3.5 times three? Guys, <laughs> nine, uh, 10 and a half hours. So I was an hour short of fuel. And that was okay because I figured uh, there was an aid station also with only 17 miles to go. And I figured if I was having trouble um, and I didn't use all my fuel, then I would, um, or if I used up all my fuel and need a little bit more, I got that one last aid station, which would end up being perfect. I love this, this aid station with like 15, 20 miles to go. It's perfect. And I was doing 350 calories per hour which sounds like a ton, and it is a ton, but you can actually do that with the table sugar. Uh, And the greatest thing about the table sugar is so expensive. You just go to the grocery store and buy five-pound bags of sugar. I wish there was more like crazy details to tell you about it. Um, The only crazy thing is like sodium citrate is really interesting, and it's hard to find, so you just order it on Amazon, but it's cheap as well. And you do, uh, I found like half a teaspoon per... Per twenty out, per per bike water bottle, like a tall water bottle, seems to be the right amount. And then also, I did for some of my calories liquid IV, um, one per um, bottle, and I used the caffeinated ones, so I was getting caffeine. And yeah, three hundred fifty to almost four hundred calories per hour. And before people figured out this table sugar thing, it's been it's been in the the triathlete uh, endurance sports uh, sphere for. Um, About three years now, people have been figuring this out and doing it, and it, it you would say like 250 calories, 300 calories max. Well, I do 350, I could do 400 calories, like it's crazy, and it really makes a huge difference. And then the secondary fuel that uh, works really well if you get tired of slurping on that crap is um, gummy worms. Sour gummy worms are the best. If you do gummy bears, are actually perfect. But if they, you know, they get uh, sweaty and they, uh, they uh, slimy and you can drop them, you can choke on them. They're kind of like a feeding grapes to a baby. It's a bad idea. And then um, a gummy, wor- sour gummy worms, the sour flavor, you know, is really sets up your mouth for like, oh, whoa. And this is interesting. And then you chew. So it's like a solid food, which is pretty cool. And then, um, then it's the gummy and the gummy worms are basically uh, just gelatinized sugar. So it works really well. So I had a a Ziploc of gummy worms and my first fuel bottle for three and a half hours was, you know, ready to go. It was liquid. And then I had a Camelback full of water and then a, um, another water bottle full of water. And then, um, I knew that that would take me from training experience. It's another reason to practice all this stuff in training. I knew that would get me to the 50 something mile aid station. And then, um, I would be mostly done with my fuel and and, uh, and and sipping on the water bottle and mentally making a note of where, you know, I'm an hour in. I should be this far through the fuel, the liquid fuel bottle that I've made uh, concentrate and then just sipping on the other water water bottle and the, and the Camelback water um, as I go to dilute the uh, concentrate as I'm sipping. on It works really, really well. And then. Um, so I get to the 50 something mile aid station and I had put the other two quote unquote water bottles worth of fuel. I dry. So just, um, and I think it's 350 grams of table sugar, Gatorade powder and IV liquid IV. Um, I'd poured it with a funnel into those, uh, small running flasks that are about the size of a, of a water bottle, but they're soft flask material with bite valves on the top. I had poured, um, three and a half hours worth of fuel into two of those. I happen to own two of those. And so they're both dry. Um, cause I don't want to carry any extra weight than I have to, but I'm carrying my fuel dry. So I get to the 50 mile aid station I pour water into one of those flasks and then squeeze it and work the water around the uh, the dry powder and it turns into liquid, and then I squeeze a little bit more water, a little bit more now it's nice and whatever. And then I squeezed once it was all um, worked into a into um, slurry, I guess. Then I poured it out of that back into the my my uh, fuel bottle that fits in the bike frame. And, uh, yeah, left the 50-mile aid station and then started riding. And then that's when I, I reeled in that, that one woman that was mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then the ride was pretty uneventful and a lot of fun. And then, yeah, I passed the 80-mile part that I told you about earlier. And then uh, people were starting to have trouble and now it's spending more and more time riding solo, but not entirely solo. I think I almost always saw somebody on the horizon, almost always. And then, um, and that really helps uh, figuring out where to go. You don't have to look at your computer quite so much. One thing I did not not like is the course is not marked. It needs uh, turn signs because I would, um, I missed another turn. Because I didn't know uh, where to go. And I would, if I was by myself, I would definitely have to be looking at my uh, bike computer and have no idea where I was going. So I think they ought to put uh, turn markers out there. Um, so then I get to the 100 mile mark, same thing again. I'm now down to my last um, uh, f- dry powdered fuel bag and I add uh, water to that, squeeze it, work it around. Um, do that while I'm in the porta can. I don't know, or some, peeing, or something. I don't. know. It doesn't really matter. And then, um, and then squeeze that into a bottle. Turns out it worked really good. Uh, Kai's solution that I worked out with him was he did individual Ziploc bags, small like snack size Ziploc bags, and put them in um, in a larger you know gallon size Ziploc bag and then when he got to an aid station or whatever situation he was doing he would bite off the corner i taught him how to do this bite off the corner of the small Ziploc, and then use that kind of like a funnel and pour that into his 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 bottle and then add water to the bottle and he likes doing that um he doesn't like to do the concentrate thing he likes to do the um the appropriate uh distribution of fluid per bottle and that worked uh, really great for him. So that's another trick if you want to do that. I consider doing that myself. And then um, there was a turn at the the second gas station. Let's say it was at mile 120 or something like that. Mile uh, 130, I don't remember where it was at. Uh, there was a turn there and I got confused and uh, went past the gas station because I couldn't tell because it's in this little intersection with some other little crossroads, a little a town. I think the town of Ferry. And... I went past the gas station and then had to look at my computer and circle back a couple times and then get back on course and then go. Um, that would be another reason to... Uh, that's the other time I went off course. and. But again, uh, you very, very much for these things want to load the, the course into your bike computer and not be following other people or guessing because sometimes you get out there and there are no other people. And um, I think a lot of people know that. And then I noticed... Um, well, towards the beginning of the race, my heart rate alarm was going off a bunch because I was, because uh, it's the beginning of the race and kind of excited and stuff, and a couple cups of coffee. So, heart rate's a little bit high. And I turned off my heart alarm to save the battery because every time it alerts, it, I was just barely going over 130. And then it would, um, every time it alerts though, you know, it's a beep and then a flashing, the screen flashes, and that's eating up your battery. And I was just barely going over that. And, um, so, I figured I'd just turn that off and save the battery. And then I got to the aid station at about mile 140. And by then, I was starting to get pretty worn out. In fact, I would say at mile 110, 112, uh, which was a mental marker for me because, you know, that's an Ironman bike ride, I was still feeling pretty good. And then after that, I started to kind of fade and be like, okay, this is, and plus you're going into a headwind now. And That's where arrow bars. You're riding solo into a wind. Uh, Arrow bars are just amazing at that point. You just feel like you're just slipping through the wind instead of you know. You watch other people around you riding upright (laughs) on the hoods or whatever, and are trying to get arrow, and you're just like, man, you should get some arrow bars. (laughs) But it's so much better. And then also, yeah, it takes the pressure off your hands and and uh, off your triceps and stuff. So. Then I get to the last aid station, uh, mile 140, and my heart rate's been running low, which means I'm low on energy. Um, I'd stopped peeing as much, but still needed to pee on occasion. And so that's good. And that's a good sign of good hydration. And um, by then I was craving something a little bit different. So I ate some Pringles because you got the potato starch you got the fat for uh, the grease for a little bit of fat and then it's got some salt. So I had a handful of pringles. and that went down really nice and it felt like I got like the stomach kind of moving again and gave me some more variation. And I could tell that was a nice pick me up. And then finally, um, the last you know 20, 15 to 20 miles, very much riding uh, solo, and on rare occasion, like either passing somebody or somebody would pass me. And that's, I think that's where the racing gets really exciting because then at that point you're really narrowed down to like your level of competition. And if, if this is when you're going to, you know, try to beat somebody, this is the time. <laughs> Because you can actually do it because you're towards the end of the race, you're not really worried about blowing up anymore, and then also you're very much against somebody that's your own like level of, of ability and then it, then you know trying to catch them and then like I would stop to pee and then the guy would pass me and then I'd try to reel him back in, and then he would have a you know drop chain or something, and then I would pass him back and there's there's about two or three people that I was kind of in a mix where we were um Uh, And also, I'm a bigger guy, and this one guy was a smaller guy, so I would pass him on the downhills. he passed me on the uphills. We never really talked, but it's fun. I mean, this is like really getting into the racing. It's starting to get really late in the day. The sun's starting to get lower on the horizon. You can tell it's getting to be evening. And then there's a video of me crossing the finish line, and uh, they did a really good job. I I think they have a – I didn't notice, but they probably have like a – a chip reader um far away. So when I came across the finish line, I got a full, you know, race announcement. And now we've got Brett Blankner coming across. And Kai was waiting for me at the finish line. And he um (laughs) he had finished the exact same distance uh probably about two hours faster than I did. So this is really funny. We're we're like the idea that Kai needs to wait and go with me to make sure that he can finish the distance is now completely out the window. It's not a rational argument whatsoever anymore. Kai can definitely do um, biking any distance that that I do and finish ahead of me. No worries whatsoever. Um, we, now it's worry about me instead. And yeah, so when I turned on my phone about halfway, around mile 80, I think is when I waited, um, a little while later, I got enough signal where... Uh, a couple text messages popped in and Emily was following Kai and said, Kai was in second place. She was so excited. And then I got a phone call of, how are you doing? Or maybe I called Emily. I don't know. And just let her know I'm doing great. Um, I had about an, I said, I got about an hour left. I'm feeling fine. Like I'm feeling great. I'm having a great time. This is so much fun. And then, um, she, uh, so they knew when I was about to finish uh, but then I did get scolded for, uh, why didn't you have your phone on? I couldn't track you, you know, for the first half of the race. And I said, so I should have told her that I was going to have my phone off so that, um, uh, to save the battery. Cause I definitely needed the battery for the second half of the race. And yeah, oh, the second half of the race, I was listening to music and podcasts. And so <laughs> I, was, I listened to Pandora and it was, it was just really, really great. So I come across the finish line and you can tell in the video, what's really funny, um, is that i've been riding for so long that i got a huge grin on my face so you can tell i'm actually doing fine but i was i was done definitely 100 done i did not want to go any further but the um my body was so used to pedaling and going forward that i came across the finish line and just kept going i didn't know how to stop <laughs> So I, I kept riding like another uh, 100 yards before I came to a finish. I was like, okay, how do I, how do I come to a stop and get off this thing? And, uh, but I was fine. And that was cool. Uh, Kai had enough time, he said, <laughs> to take a shower, um, eat one of the free burgers, and take a nap before I've crossed the finish line, which just shows you the difference in ability there which i'm very proud of is pretty amazing and then uh and i did say at the beginning of the show kai is a cat one um mountain bike racer and also on occasion beats pros if there's pros his cat one races and he does marathon mountain bike racing too and he'll uh either win or get top two top three in his age group and then um and sometimes the age group is to 29, 29 and under, and he's only 18, 17, 18. And then um, Kai is legit, like uh, wants to be a pro mountain bike racer and gravel racer and has the ability to uh, do it. And and then on occasion, well, almost every race, uh, he'll beat a pro or two. We'll look at the pro finish times and he'll beat a couple of them. Um, You know, it's usually a pro that's having an off day or something. So, but he'll be in the mix with the pros, sort of. And I think in a couple more years, he'll be uh, racing um, pro um, full on with the pro lead pack. So that was this race. Another reason we wanted to go do this race is so that Kai could be in the mix with the real pros, the big pros. This is the biggest race he's ever been in with the biggest names of the real legit pro field. And that was one another reason we wanted to make this race happen so that he could have that experience. It's very inspirational, like doing Ironman triathlon to be on the same course, same time with the best in the world. And that's what he got out of this race. So he he had a really good time and he, yeah, he finished fine. His time was nine hours and change. And one thing that I, back to, um, starting everybody at the same time. One thing I, I was kind of sad about was when I crossed the finish line, the food was almost all gone, pretty much all gone. There's the, there's not a big group of people at the finish line anymore. They've kind of left. And, and then, you know, like a couple minutes later, the person that I'd been going back and forth with finished. And then, so people are just trickling across the finish line, even though I was half, I, I finished like mid pack, you know, and, and I'm like, man, if they finished, if they started people, at, um, if they started the long distance people earlier and then the shorter distance people later, then you would have more people at the finish line at the same time. It'd be, be a more of a celebration and a party at the end uh, because there'd be more people all at the same time. I don't know. That's just kind of something that crossed my mind because it was kind of like, man, they did an awesome job of announcing me coming across the finish line and good job and stuff, but it still felt the slightest bit lonely and like you were out there by yourself, you know, and it's like, but I'm not, <laughs> there's still a ton of people out there. But anyway, I talked with Kai, uh, about his race and he said, yeah, that he stayed with a, a, a group of people that was about his level. He tried, uh, he definitely kept his heart rate around this target heart rate. His big drama was he dropped his chain five times. I, and that's what I estimate too, for me is I dropped my chain five times, And so we've got some advice. Uh, There's chain keepers, you know, they kind of look like derailers to keep your chain on. And then there's, and those are really inexpensive. And then also that our chain rings might be worn out in the front. And also um, we've got our our chains and our cassettes and our chain rings are goopy with. um, We put on muck off wet. What is it? Uh, Wet conditions lube one time, maybe a couple times ever and it leaves this residue that's like like glue, like tar on your on your drivetrain and um man it's like almost impossible to get off and i don't think that's helping at all either i think it helps knock the chain off the uh, teeth that it's supposed to be on so somebody recommended we get a uh, wolf tooth brand chain rings i don't know if that's really going to make that much difference but i think also cleaner drivetrain and chain keeper so i ordered one um, and I'm going to try it. And then if it works for me, um, I'm going to get Kai one too for our next race. Uh, anyway, so reviewing Kai's heart rate with him, he had level heart rate the entire time. I looked at his workout graph after he was done, after he uploaded the train peaks, nice and level, very even. And I thought that was perfect. It showed that he his fueling was perfect. Hydration was perfect. Pacing was perfect. So I'm very proud of him for that because he's got, he's got a coach that he works with because it's really hard, difficult to coach your own kid. And, um, uh, but then I just kind of supervise and jump in there and look at things myself and give advice on, on things. And, um, and I told him that was perfect execution. And also, uh, for the next few days after the race, I'd ask, Hey, are you sore? How are you feeling? And he was sore. So he went hard. He really did race it, uh, more than I did. And I, I'm not sore at all after the race. And, um, that's a really good sign that I paced it like a casual effort and I definitely could have gone faster, but also as the responsible adult there and also getting older and also, uh, there's this mindset of, uh, that I've drilled into my head that I always have to run a marathon after a long bike ride. (laughs) And also I'm there to have fun. And I need to have my, like I said, as a responsible adult, if 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 Kai got into trouble and had some medical condition or a crash, I need to not be stuck in a ditch with cramps so bad that I can't, you know, do whatever. So I need to uh, sacrifice my racing uh, quite a bit so that I'm just there riding sweeper and just enjoying the heck out of it, having a really good time. And But it is a really good indicator. I finished mid-pack and um, I finished... Uh, uh, just fine. And it's just a testament to Zen Tri Training and um, what, what we do here and how to train right after all these years. Got it really nailed down. So if you need some training, uh, let me know. I coach. So you can send an email to texafornia at gmail.com. T-E-X-A-F-O-R-N-I-A. texafornia at gmail.com. Put coaching in the uh, subject or the uh, the header or somewhere in the body and I search my email on occasion for coaching requests and see what we can do for you and you will be able to finish your big event with no trouble whatsoever and go to work again on Monday feeling fine just like I did or you can be like Kai and finish second in his age group he finished yeah second in the 19 and under I think age group which is insane for a 157 mile, uh, gravel bike ride. And he did it with all the tips and tricks that I taught him. And, uh, of like how to do the fueling, how to do the water. He's doing the, the fueling I've, uh, that I'm doing as well. And the pacing and using the heart rate and power and training and stuff like that. So anyway, just could not be prouder of, of him and, um, and his results after training the Zen Triway. All right, so then i have some thoughts after the race about a, a few other things one it's the farthest i've ever ridden on a bike at one time and i just cannot get over that um and i know people ride a lot longer for many many more days you know right around the world right across America and stuff but the fact that i rode um 11 and a half hours on mixed surface um and felt great it's just so cool um, there's some controversy about the finish in the winter. Adam Roberge, Roberge. I saw an article today that he's catching flack for um, using road racing tactics in a gravel in a gravel race. You know, it's where, like you hold back and ride in a pack, and then towards the end, then you break off the front. And um, uh, the spirit of gravel is, you know, you're not you're just supposed to ride and and i don't i don't know i don't get it because <laughs> this is my this is this is my thought okay the level of ability you have to be to be able to ride at the front of one of these races in a pro pack like that anyway is insane so even if they're kind of like drafting on off of each other and using tactics and not sharing the load the entire time you know and all that and not riding off the front most of the time the power that they're putting down to be able to do that is absolutely insane if you look at the 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 power graphs of these guys and girls and even if somebody is quote unquote sandbagging it a little bit at the at the front the fact that they're up there at all is unbelievable. Like the amount of work that they're having to do uh, just to stay up there, and that's just that's just bike racing. So I I don't I don't get it. I don't get it that um, somebody's uh, if somebody's drafting off of you the entire most of the way and won't take a push off the front, then you slow down until they freaking go. I mean. You draft off of them. It's it's your. That's what bike racing is. So I don't I don't I don't really get it so much. Um, I get it that you can perceive that somebody's you know drafting off of you and not doing the workload, but also I think that uh, in that case you need to stand up and say, uh, "I'm not going off the front anymore until you do," and uh, stand up for yourself a little bit. Okay, and then. Uh, they crossed wheels at the front in the front pack and Payson McElving, McElvin uh, crashed and got a concussion. And he's a local hero. I think he's from this part of Texas. Uh, I think he's actually from the College Station area, maybe. And um, a real inspiration to Kai. So it was really sad that Payson um, crashed and they sent a picture from the hospital. He's concussed. He said he didn't know where he was. He's all banged up really bad. Um, broken this, lacerated that, I guess, Um, man just looks really bad. But he's okay, uh, per se. Um, He was awake, and I don't think any major injuries that are career-ending or anything like that. Um, And then the real controversy that I think ought to be addressed with gravel racing is there's a bit of a safety issue that these courses are out in the middle of nowhere, but they are out on open roads, public roads. And I think people forget that. There's definitely a high, nice safety factor in that these are gravel roads and that there's hardly any cars out there. But they do cross state highways. They cross uh, county roads that are paved. And they do not close down these roads. And in um, the past year, there's been a couple people killed in gravel races by traffic. Because they at race pace, can you imagine uh, driving your pickup truck across countryside and on a typical day, and then some of the world's best people come flying down uh, a gravel road, cross over the paved highway for a. a couple miles and then take another turn off into another gravel road again. Like the insanity and the speeds that they're going at. So the surprise and the shock of, of this happening is pretty crazy. Um, I don't know what they're going to do about it. Put more people at the more dangerous intersections to uh, warn cars. Um, I think one thing that makes gravel racing nice and cheap and accessible is that um, it's on open roads with uh, very few cars. So it's kind of a It's just controversial. You know, what are we going to do about this? My own controversy that I've got going on is that my bike will hold up to a 50, but just barely. And if it gets muddy, it'll get jammed. That was one of my concerns. But it'll hold a 48 by 700 in the front, but it'll only hold a 42 by 700 in the rear. And I think most people's bikes are are like that you forget that the front fork will actually hold much wider than the uh, rear. And so I ride a 48 in the rear. um, And I ride these big fat tires because at my weight, I'll sink into sand if I ride narrower tires than this. And, um, but in the back, I ride a 650B. So I've got a mullet bike setup. up. Mullet as in downhill mountain biking mullet where the rear wheel is slightly smaller than the front wheel and you can't notice it unless you're looking for it. I post a ton of pictures on Instagram. I never mention it. And I know the mechan- one of our mechanics at the local bike shop it absolutely drives him crazy that I'm riding a 700 in the front and 650 in the back. Um, but that's what it takes to get a nice plump tire which gives you some nice suspension and helps with control and ride quality out there. And I've never had a problem with it. Nobody, nobody notices unless I point it out to them. So if you wanna do that, if you can't get as big a tire as you want in the back on a 700, uh, throw a 650 on there and um, plump up the tire as wide as you can go and you'll find that it makes almost no difference. I can tell that it turns on its butt of faster and technical stuff because of the smaller rear wheel otherwise it's, um, the, the benefits of being able to put a fatter tire on the back far outweighs any downside that I can even think of. Um, there's, there's a ton of upsides to that. And so that's one controversial thing about me. And then another thing that I do is the coming from a triathlon background, it drives me nuts that gravel bikes have these like completely, uh, aerodynamic disaster forks on the front of them. They're almost round tube. They're so bad. And it it just drives me absolutely nuts that that they're like this. And it's like, well, it's a gravel bike, you know? The gravel bikes need to be the ugliest color possible and they need to have completely un, un-aerodynamic forks on the front of them. <laughs> So what I did one time years ago was on my other my older gravel bike is I put uh using black gorilla tape which looks like carbon fiber anyway um I put uh a I put some strips of the carbon fiber uh or of the gorilla tape on the fork on the trailing edge of the fork to make it um more aerodynamic to give it a trailing edge uh, Lance Armstrong's team used to do this with exposed cables and stuff, exposed cable housing. Just putting a trailing edge on a cylinder um, reduces the drag tenfold or something like that. It's, it's a dramatic improvement. So I would say... Um, and then the other thing is um, it turns the front fork... And you can look at it on Instagram. You'll notice it. It turns the front fork into an aero fork. Um, it's not the best aero fork, but it's something. And then also there's something I learned backpacking and also uh, bike packing with another friend is you want to have some duct tape with you duct tape is hugely useful and the thing is is don't you don't pack like a roll of duct tape that's very like one of the most difficult things to pack it's kind of ridiculous but what you do instead is you wrap the duct tape around something so if you're backpacking you wrap the duct tape around your walking stick and then your walking stick acts as the roll of duct tape, and you know like several feet of duct tape around that and then if you're bike packing and you have like a frame pump or like a bigger pump, um, you can wrap the duct tape around the pump. I'm trying to think of something else cylindrical that you would wrap it around but um and I have used duct tape out there to patch. A tire that had blown through on the side, and I've used it to hold a um, shoe together where the sole of the shoe came off. So I duct taped the uh, shoe back together. So the front fork of my bike acts as a duct tape holder. And the thing with aerodynamic stuff is if your aerodynamic trick to make your bike faster actually serves as a utility as well. Well then it's not a um then it's not it's not cheating, right? So you can't put a fairing on your bike, but if your water bottle happens to be flattened and it holds water, well then that's fine, right? Your frame bag, if you if you use a frame bag, it actually makes your bike faster because it fills in the gap in your frame. So but it's not considered if you just put a piece of frame bag material in there and had nothing in it just for aerodynamics well that would be cheating but the fact that it's a bag and you store stuff in it well all of a sudden it's um it's fine um, because it's actually serving a utility well I put strips of duct tape on my fork so that I have duct tape in case I need it and it serves to make my bike faster as well by um, turning that round front fork shape into a uh, flattened, more aerodynamic uh, fork shape with a trailing edge on it. And uh, yeah, that's, so that's controversial. That'll be, um, people just can't believe it, think it's some sort of scandal. I think it's kind of funny. Um, I've ridden with some people. Uh, one time, this one guy I was riding with said, "Why? Do you, what's wrong with your fork? Is it broken or something? I go, no, I just have duct tape on it because I need duct tape. And also it makes my fork more aero. And this is a guy that does not come from a uh, mountain bike or from a uh, triathlon or TT bike uh, background. And he's like, that, makes, that doesn't make your bike any faster. And I go, oh yeah, it does, dude. And he's like, well, I don't get it. Why would, I'm the kind of person, people always say this, they go, I'm the kind of person that I just like to ride the course. And, um, and I ride and with the bike I got and whatever. And I turned and looked at him and I said, dude, you're on a $7,000 arrow shaped bike. (laughs) He really was. And I said, so you've, you just bought your aerodynamics built into your bike. It had all this arrow, you know, uh, shaping into the carbon and all that stuff. And, and I said, why do you, why do you get to have all that arrow? And then I don't just because you bought it and your bike happens to have it on there. I said, that's And he's like, "Well, I just like to, I just finish however long it takes." And I said, "Yeah, but the other mindset is, is I can go out and cover more ground with the same amount of effort, and I get to see more scenery. Why, why go slower if if for no reason? You know what I mean? So, it's not that I'm trying to be faster. I'm trying to, I want to see more stuff. I want to cover more ground and see more scenery and see more animals and have more adventure. Um, If I cover." Uh, let's say 10, 10, more miles in the same training ride because my bike's more aero or because I ride with a, you're, you're wearing a, and he was also wearing like a body fitting, you know, uh, uh jersey, right. And a more aero helmet than mine. And I'm like, dude, you're wearing all this aero stuff, dude, don't criticize me. And, um, and you're also, you know, hunched over on your aero bars or your, your bars. And then you're, you're looking at it wrong. I get 10 more miles of adventure in, in my ride than, than I would otherwise. So that's why I do it. I ain't going to win one of these races. I'm not really worried about that. And, um, also if something's really long and really difficult, you want to take every advantage you can to make sure that you finish, man. If you're out there, An extra half an hour because you're riding with a baggy jersey you haven't shaved your legs your frame is an aerodynamic mess you're riding with your number plate flat into the wind and um i'm trying to think of other random things that people do won't refuse to put on aero bars then um you're really you know you're not getting to participate in the event and you might not finish you seriously you might have like a harder time finishing so and you're definitely going to feel more like crap the next day because you're out there an extra half an hour than you needed to be. Anyway, that's my controversial uh, take on the subject. So interestingly enough, my Garmin 945 lasted the entire race. I think it had 38% battery left, left even after 11 and a half hours. Half Ironman training was perfect. Uh, again, where I did some focus work on um, the biking and stuff. Uh, changed my training with just a few weeks out. And then... Uh, to be more long distance gravel focused. Um, I made sure that I did tons of hill work. Um, And what you do is in training, you do like low cadence, slugging it up the hills. And that really works the muscles. And then on race day, you do high cadence. You need to practice high cadence, you know, in your training so that you know how to do it. But, and then if you do high cadence spinning up hills, then you're saving your legs for later on. Uh, so yeah, hard hills, low cadence and training. And then in races, you actually spin because you're going to need it. And then a question like, um, there's, you definitely want tire liners in, uh, mountain bike racing and gravel. It's kind of questionable. And then in this race, I would say you don't really need them because the risk of getting a flat is kind of low, um, cause the surface is so good. Um, but if you do have a tire liner and if I had carbon wheels, I have aluminum wheels. If I had carbon wheels, I would have tire liners in because you can ride on them a little bit further and not damage your rims and also protect your rims from a from a hard hit uh, aluminum rims i don't really worry about it so much um, yeah me drop the biggest frustration was drop dropping the chain like five times, so i 'm going to get a chain uh, guard whatever that 's called uh, tra- uh, dropper keeper <laughs> and then um, another question uh, that I got from Emily. And others was like, were you going to ride with rear radar and blinky lights and stuff on your bike? And before the race, I was like, nah, I don't need it. There's going to be plenty of people out there. And after the race, I actually might consider uh, doing that because you're strung out and you're, there's a lot of division between you and the, um, the next rider. And, uh, so the ch- and, and you are on occasion on a, on a state highway, real small but you know, car's going high speed and no shoulder. And um, a blinky light would be a nice safety factor. And the extra weight might actually be worth it. Um, another guy and I uh, were riding and a, and a truck went by, a pickup truck, and was r- gunned his engine and yelled something, you know. But that was the only one time in the entire race. Then uh, if you have uh, an RV or something like that, would you take it to this race? Definitely. The upside of RVs is that if you have a dog, um, it, then you don't have to have, a, you know, you don't have to leave it in a hotel or something like that. And it's like having a little hotel room, like right there with you. It was really cool. And then it's, you're right there and it's better than being in a tent. <laughs> and yeah. And then you're also socializing with everybody in the fin. So this, is the end of my gravel locos review would i do it next year a hundred percent i am so excited about doing it again next year i many times on the way home said this is calling because emily couldn't go with us calling her on the phone and talking with her i found myself saying like this is the central texas version of unbound for real it is amazing. If you do the long one, it takes as much time as doing an Ironman. It's relatively cheap, 185 bucks. And the scenery is just out of this world. The people are great. It's a real adventure. Oh, the last whatever miles. Yeah. You literally, uh, there's a river, a low water crossing, right? Where the river's on purpose running over a concrete slab. Um, and it was ankle deep, um, but you can't really tell how deep it is, and when you start, and it's not smart to ride your bike through water um, if it goes up over the pedals because then you get water ingressing into the ball bearings of your pedals, especially if it's at the height of your bottom bracket. That would be uh, really not smart because um, then water will get into, into that. So, and also again, it's smart to um, get off your bike and walk every once in a while to kind of like spread the spread the load a little bit and give your muscles a break. And um, so shouldering the bike and walking across the creek was really cool because I, the water um, going through your shoes and everything just felt nice, you know, nice cold water at the uh, the end of a hot day. And yeah, I just felt like this is our, this is Texas's Unbound, man. It's, it's not crazy remote. It's actually kind of easy to get to. Um, the weather is it's just the right time of year, um, where, it, you know, it could get really hot, but, um, and then if, if you find yourself in over your head, you can cut the course and finish sooner. And just, yeah, like I was just, just completely blown away. Uh, the, the scenery, the, the rolling hills, the green hills, um, just everything about it was like, unbounds, like really hard to get into. And, um, why, I'm, and I'm not trying to talk negative about Unbound because I know Unbound is like, is amazing. And it's, uh, the re, it's one of the reasons that gravel is such a big thing in America. And th- don't ever want to talk badly about it. But, but <laughs> with all that said, but the Flint Rocks, you're basically riding on arrowheads out there, right? And the terrain is just kind of this rolling blah. And of course, if it rains, it can get muddy and turn into gunk Um, you're getting rid of all those problems by doing this race by doing gravel locos the terrain is it's champagne gravel it's um uh really scenic and um well-stocked well-aged station and a ton of people it's really great so that's my review of gravel locos let's take a break for a second and i'll come back and wrap up the show All right. That is definitely the end of the episode and going through all the audio and making sure I clipped out all the uhs and does. There was just two more things that I wanted to mention. One was at the very end here, I mentioned why you would want to do this race instead of unbound, for example. And the reason I forgot to mention is that if it rains, if it's been raining, the course does not turn into mud. It just turns into wet grit, (laughs) but you will not be stuck in mud holes, uh, trying to push your bike, uh, and with your wheels stuck into the frame with peanut butter mud. That would be really, really, a lame way to spend 150 miles of, of your weekend doing that. And then also The very last thing is I never finished the skunk story. I came across the finish line and uh, Kai said, how'd you do? Did you, you're doing all right and everything? And I said, yeah. And I said, oh my gosh, man. Uh, I went over and grabbed uh, one of the last burgers that was left and and sat down at a picnic table, grabbed a beer. And then I started telling him, you know, how my day went. And I said, and I almost got sprayed by a skunk. I just barely missed it. And he said, no, you got sprayed. (laughs) I was like, what? And he said, I can smell it. I go, you can smell it. I can't smell it. And he said, yeah, that's because you've been around it for the whole ride, but I can, I can definitely smell it on you. And I said, is it bad? And he said, no, it's not terrible, but it's definitely there. And so I didn't think much about it. And then went back to the RV, rode our bikes Uh, you know, the hundred yards down to the RV, which is such a cool thing that you can do races like this and have an RV there and, uh, started cleaning up. And then Kai said, get out of your kit. You smell like a skunk. And I said, no, I don't really. And he said, no, you still do. And so the next day we had our kits separated. Actually, Kai did not want me to put my kit with his because he didn't want my kit to make his kit smell bad because of the skunk. And I said, no, it's not, it's not that bad. And then he said, no, it is that bad. You just can't tell anymore because you've been around it. And I, you know, it was easy to do. I just put it, it a different gr- plastic grocery sacks. So I just put mine in one grocery sack. And then we had a lot of fun with uh, when we got home, which was a nice easy drive a three hour drive we got to the door i came in with the bag brought in my jersey and then put it on the ground and the dogs went nuts they were sniffing it and pushing it around on the floor trying to get under it trying to smell like what is this smell it was so fascinating to them so yeah i actually did get sprayed by a skunk but the good thing is uh, i did not get sprayed bad enough where it actually stuck to me it's just uh I haven't, I haven't smelled my clothes since Emily washed them. Emily said she washed them twice. No, I did smell my clothes. Emily washed them twice, and they don't smell anymore. So, yeah, there's that. All right, that is it for an episode. I had so much fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the whole thing. I hope you got some good tips out there. And even if you don't do gravel, I tried to make sure that the show covered tips in a way that's useful for long-distance anything. So Man's so ultra trail running, marathon races anything that you do that's long distance all this stuff still applies and if you do want to do a gravel race and you want to come to gravel locos let me know we'll see you there next year i'm going to try to make it happen again all right everybody stay safe out there work the uphills cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side down out